knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. A son that your descendants are going to have the promised land, that I'm going to make you into a mighty nation, that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, Last week, as we studied through chapter 17, uh, in the beginning of chapter 18, we noted that Abraham is now 99 years old. So 24 years have transpired since God first called him, God first promised him. And in these 24 years, Abraham has done a lot of foolish things, but he's also grown a lot. We've seen a lot of maturity, a lot of things that have happened. And we've noted that really that takes place each time that God meets with him, because as God meets with him, he's seeking to help him grow in obedience, help him grow in faith. And uh, in chapter 18, we have the sixth meeting that God has. He's going to meet with Abraham seven times in his life, and this is almost the last one. This is the sixth meeting. And if you remember from last week, we have Three men that appear, one is the Lord, two of the other ones are angels, and they come, and Abraham sees them, and he runs to them at 99 years old. He bows before them, he worships them, uh, he serves them, and they give him wonderful news. They tell him and Sarah, hey, I know you've been waiting 24 years for the promise of a child, but now in nine months, you are going to have a son, and you are to name him Isaac. And remember what Isaac means? Laughter, which was fitting because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the idea that we're going to have children at 190 years old. Come on, you know, that's not going to happen. And then God poses a question to them that they needed to understand. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Hey, I say you're going to have it. You're going to have it. Trust me. Put your faith in this. Nine months from now, you will have the child of promise because nothing is too difficult for me. So that's where we left off last week, but the Lord is still with Abraham. He hasn't departed yet. And so as we finish chapter 18 tonight, we're going to see that once again, God is seeking to do things to help Abraham grow. But there's going to be some specific areas. We've looked at faith and obedience, but tonight as God does something and shares with Abraham something, we're going to see growth in two other areas, growth as a man of prayer and growth as a godly father. And so let's see what uh, God shares with Abraham to help him grow in these two great ways, starting in verse 16 of chapter 18, where we left off last week, says this. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he spoke, what he has spoken to him. 
So the Lord and two angels who are all in this form of three men, they finally get up from the meal that Abraham has given to them. And Abraham gets up with them and is, you know, hosting them and, and walking out with them. And as this happens, the Lord says something very interesting. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? God's about to send these two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're going to see that next chapter in chapter 19, to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. But God decides, you know what, I'm not going to hide what I'm doing from Abraham. I'm going to let him know that this is my plan and this is going to happen. And he does this for a reason. Notice why. Verse 18 says this. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. God doesn't hide what he's going to do from Abraham, but he does this because he wants Abraham to grow to be a man who leads his family, to lead his children, who leads his household in what? And righteousness, and the ways of the Lord, righteousness and justice. You know, this is something very important for us to note, because in nine months, what's going to happen to Abraham and Sarah? They're going to have the child of promise, the one that's going to start this great multitude that's going to come from him. And God is saying, I want to prepare you, Abraham, as a father who is going to be able to raise your children in a godly way. I want your son to be raised in the ways of the Lord, that you lead him in the ways of the Lord. You know, interestingly, a few hundred years from this point, Moses is going to come on the scene, and God is going to give the nation of Israel the law. And throughout the law, we see something that we see repeated over and over again towards parents, and we see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And I want you to note the challenge here to parents, because it's the challenge that God gave many hundreds of years before this to Abraham, It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the first thing that God commands godly parents to do? The first command could be connected with other people besides parents. But what's the first command there in verse 5? Love the Lord your God with what? Heart, soul, strength. What's the second commandment he gives? Verse 6. Right before that. Verse 6. What? Keep what in your hearts? Ah, keep God's word. So first he says, I want you to love God with everything you have, and I want you to keep my word in your heart. Now, why do you think that would be important for parents to do before the next thing? Because usually we jump straight into the next thing and say, well, this is what God's commanding parents to do, which is important. What's the third thing he tells us in verse 7? You should teach who? Children. How should we teach them? Diligently. When should we do it? All the time, when you're walking, when you're sitting throughout the day, what should we do? We should be teaching our children. But here's the key. Guess what? You won't have anything to teach them from a spiritual standpoint if you yourself don't love the Lord and if you yourself don't have God's word in your hearts. 
So that's the starting point. As a parent, you first have to love the Lord. You first have to have God's word in your heart if you are then going to be able to teach those things to your children as you walk and talk and and lie down and rise up. And this is the challenge that God has for Abraham. It's something that he puts in the law a few hundred years later. But we need to understand something important. Parents, we are the biggest influence in our children's lives. The question is, what kind of influence are we? We are the biggest influence. That's a a reality. But God wants us to be a particular kind of influence. He wants us to be a spiritual influence. He wants us to be those who raise up our children in the ways of the Lord. And the most important spiritual influence is the father. God has placed the father as the head of the home, as the spiritual leader of the home. And this is why God says to Abram, I want to help you grow because I want you, Abraham, to be that godly father who's going to raise up your children in righteousness and justice in my ways. You know, God doesn't just want Abraham to grow as a parent. He wants each of us who are his followers to grow as parents, to grow spiritually in the capacity to be able to invest in our children and help them grow in the ways of the Lord. And this is something very important for us to understand in the church world today because many Christian parents are trying to pass on this responsibility to the church. God has given this responsibility to parents and parents are then saying, you know what, I'll let the Sunday school teacher do that. I'll let the children's minister, I'll let the junior high or the high school pastor, I'll let the pastor, they can invest in my kids. They can try to raise my kids spiritually. They can help my kids walk in the right ways. But that is not what God has commanded and that's not what God wants. God has not made the church to replace parents. We are to come alongside of parents. We are to help parents grow in the Lord, and we are to help parents in what they're doing to invest in their kids. We are not to say, we're going to replace what you're doing. We're going to take over that spiritual role. Now, that wasn't given to the church. That was given to parents. And sadly, too many parents in the church world today are thinking, you know what? I'll just do and live the way I want, and I'll let the church raise my kids. I want them to be good and godly. It doesn't mean I have to be. You know, I did children's ministry a lot when I was younger, and I was so saddened to see how many parents had the mindset of, you know what, many of them would drop their kids off and not even go to church themselves. It was just like, here, you take care of our kids spiritually. You invest in them spiritually. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be taking my role that God has given me seriously. I'll allow you to do it for me. We need to recognize that is not what God has for us. A senator was speaking at a church men's dinner when the subject of prayer in school came up. And he asked the men, how many of you still think prayer in school should be something that's allowed? And all these men raised their hand and they were arguing about why it's so important and how sad it is that we remove that from our schools. And then after they finish, he says, you know what, I have another question for you. How many of you men regularly pray with your family in your home? And the majority of those men who just raised their hand and said, oh, we want prayer in school, could not raise their hand to say, I pray with my family. There's a problem there. Too often, we pass on the spiritual headship, the spiritual role that God has given us to someone else. God wants us to grow. You might think, well, I'm not equipped for that. Well, God wants to help you grow. God wants to raise you up. God wants to help you become more of a godly husband and a godly wife and a godly father and a godly mother so that you can invest spiritually in your kids. So God wants Abraham to be a man who grows as a father to invest in his kids that are coming. And notice what God says in verses 20 and 21. 
And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is kind of interesting how God words this. Sometimes we, we think, well, wait a second, what's going on? Does God know and see everything? Yes. Okay, so when he says, you know what, I need to go down to Sodom and I got to find out, you know, there's been this outcry of wickedness and I got to go check this out to see if it's really true. God didn't need to check it out to see if it's true. He already knows it's true. He already knows what's going on. He's saying this for the benefit of Abraham. He's letting Abraham know, hey, I'm sending my angels to go there and I'm giving you this, you know, telling you about this so that you know my plan. He's not saying I don't have a clue and I got to go find out. He's just letting Abraham know what's going to happen. And this is an opportunity now. How are you going to respond, Abraham? Here's another test for you. Let's see how far you've grown. Let's see how mature you are. How are you going to respond to the reality that I might go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, why would Abraham not want that? Yeah, I mean, that would probably be the biggest reason his nephew Lot and the family that's with him lives in Sodom. And so he has a vested interest in the people there. And so he surely would not want them to be destroyed. And so God lets him know, here, this is what I'm planning on doing, Abraham. And now let's see how you respond. Well, through the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that Abraham responds with a prayer. He's going to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to see five lessons about prayer. Things that we should be doing in our life as we pray, as we intercede for others. We see some great examples here in the life of Abraham. Starting in verse 22, says this. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? So the two angels that were there, they, they leave and they're heading towards Sodom. And now it's just Abraham and the Lord. And what are we told the first thing that Abraham does there in verse 23? He draws near to the Lord. So it's just Abraham and the Lord, and Abraham's about to intercede on behalf of Sodom. And I think it's great to note that the first thing he does is he draws near to the Lord. He wants the Lord's ear. He draws near and wants to intercede on behalf of the people in Sodom. And I think this is the first lesson on prayer that I want us to take note of. We need to come near to God when we pray. This is really the first step in effective prayer. And it's not just the drawing near, but it's also the drawing away. You know, we need to draw ourselves away from the distractions, away from the cares, away from, you know, the things of life that so often keep us from focusing and praying and really interceding for others. And so we draw away from those things and draw near to the Lord so that we can really give our time to interceding for the needs of other people. You know, I think oftentimes we're not willing to come away from other things, to come near to the Lord, because we don't, really don't see the, the privilege of prayer, the, the power of prayer. And so, they, you know, I got better things to do, and that's why I'm not going to come away from this in order to pray. E.M. Bounds said this about prayer. Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. 
You know, prayer is one of the greatest privileges we have as believers. Sadly, I think it's probably the most neglected of the privileges that we have. But what an amazing privilege that the creator of heaven and earth says, you know what? At any time, you can come and communicate with me. You can come and seek me. You can come and ask of me. I'm always available to you. So Abraham comes near to the Lord. The second way that Abraham intercedes is in verse 24 through 26. It says this. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. You shall not, ju- uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. At the end of verse 23 and now at the beginning of verse 24, Abraham poses two very important questions for the Lord. The one then 23 is, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Okay, in Sodom, he's thinking about Lot. He's thinking about Lot's family, surely, and and hopefully the people that Lot has invested in. He's thinking, would you destroy all of them together? Would you destroy the wicked who are definitely there, but with the righteous? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy everybody, including those 50, or would you ultimately spare it for those 50 righteous? These are great questions, but what he says next reveals that Abraham is praying with an understanding of who God is and also how God works. He says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. You know, Abraham understands some important truths about God. God, you are just. You're a just judge. And a just judge does what is right. He does not judge people who don't deserve that judgment. And surely, you as a just judge wouldn't judge righteous people alongside of wicked people. But I want you to recognize here, Abraham is interceding with the knowledge of the truth that God is a just judge. He's interceding with the knowledge of who God is and how God operates. The second lesson on prayer I want you to take note of is our prayers should be based on a knowledge of who God is and how God works. You know, so often I have people come to me and as a pastor and they want to know how to grow in prayer. And I think one of the hindrances that I see so often in prayer is an ignorance of God's word, which brings an ignorance to who God is and ignorance to how God works. And you listen, and I'm sure if you've been in any type of corporate prayer, you've heard people pray things that you sometimes wonder, you know, I don't think they really have a grasp of the God that they're praying to. I don't really think they have a grasp of what they're actually asking for because that contradicts what God's word clearly spells out and says. And so the more effective your prayers will be, will be the more you know the God you pray to, the more you know how he operates, the more you will be in line with his will. You know, when the Bible speaks about prayer, we regularly see something connected with God answering, which is ultimately what we want, our prayers. An example of this is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. It says this, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now there's a very important phrase that we see here. It's a phrase that we see so often connected when the Bible speaks about prayer. What is the important phrase you think that we see here? According to his will. 
You pray anything, he hears you. I grew up in a church like that. They would take the according to his will out. You pray anything to the Lord, he will hear you, he will grant it, you get it, you name it, you claim it, it's yours, and it's great. No, 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 according to his will, that's the key. If it's not according to his will, he's not going to do it. If it's not according to his will, the answer is not going to come, the one that you want. It doesn't say if you pray anything, it says you pray anything according to his will. The more you know of who God is, the more you know of how God works, guess what? Your prayers will start to be more in line with his will because you know him, you know how he operates, and so you can pray based on that understanding and that knowledge. I think one of the problems that we have with prayer is we often pray ignorantly. Now, there's some people who just pray straight out lies that go completely against the Bible, but I think for the majority of Christians, it's just ignorance. They just don't know better. It's not that they're purposely praying foolish things or purposely praying things against God's word. They just don't know it very well. And so they just throw out this stuff to the Lord and and they don't recognize how unbiblical that prayer might be. And some of them have great motivation, like someone who might say, you know what, Father, I want you to force my family member to come and accept you. I want you to make them love you. And it comes from a heart of, this person's lost that I love. I want to see them have a relationship with you, Lord. Force them. Now, that prayer is never going to be answered. Why? If you know who God is and how he works, you recognize he does not force himself upon us. He does not force us to accept him. He gives us free will to choose him. And so that's never going to be a prayer that's answered. It's coming from a heart that loves someone, but it's also coming from a mind that's ignorant of God's truth. And so we can pray prayers without a knowledge of who God is and how he works that are not going to be answered because of that reality. Now, you might have someone who says, Lord, I've claimed a mansion for myself, and now I demand it, give it to me. And there are people in the church world who are doing that, lots and lots. But once again, this is not in line with who God is and how he works. And his word actually clearly tells us that's one of the reasons why he doesn't answer prayer. James 4.3 tells us this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's the reason that James says some of the prayers that we ask don't get answered? Yeah, selfish motivation for my pleasure is all about me. When Jesus gave the model prayer, it's God's will be done, not let me have everything I can on this earth. And so once again, we realize if you don't know who God is and how he works, you can pray for things that he'll never answer because it's not in line with his will. The third way that Abraham intercedes is in verse 27 through 29. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for a lack of five? So he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. So Abraham is still interceding, he's still communing with God, and he says something that reveals how he is approaching the Lord. Notice he says, Indeed now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. You know, what Abraham reveals here is something that each one of us need to have as we approach the Lord. Abraham understood what he was like in comparison to what God is like. I'm but dust and ashes to the creator of heaven and earth. I am nothing in comparison to who you are. 
And I think this is something that is so important as we approach the creator of heaven and earth. Sometimes we come in an arrogant way, in a way that's just not right, because we don't recognize this important difference of who I am versus who God is. And so Abraham, as he comes and he sees that difference and he sees who he is, he approaches the Lord now in humility. And so this is the third lesson that I want us to take from prayer. We need to come to God in humility when we pray. You know, humility is a a meekness, an understanding of our inferiority in comparison to God's superiority. It's a recognition of how sinful I am and how holy and perfect God is. You know, many people come to God in pride and arrogance when they pray. They come to God, they tell him how wrong he is and how right they are. God, you are so wrong in taking so much time. You should have done what I wanted and and fixed this right now. God, you are so wrong in doing it this way. You should have done it my way and done it this way. It's pride. It's arrogance for me to stand back and say, who are you, God, to do it that way? Why don't you do it like me? I mean, the reality of that, when it sinks in and you just think how arrogant that is of us. One of the main ways we hinder our prayers is by coming to God in a prideful way. Jesus shares a parable about two men who prayed. One comes to God in pride. One comes to God in humility. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we see this parable. Jesus says this. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not as much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So two men come to God in prayer. The first man, he is a Pharisee, and he approaches God very pridefully. His whole prayer is about how much better he is than everyone else and how much he does for God. That's, that's what his whole prayer consists of. He doesn't ask for anything. It's just, I'm so wonderful and great, Lord, and look at all that I do for you. The second man is a tax collector, and he prays humbly. He won't even look to heaven. He just beats his breast, and he just has one little thing to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm not great. I'm not wonderful. I'm not better than everyone else. I don't have it all together. I don't do a bunch for you. I'm a sinful man, and I recognize that, and I need your mercy. Now, who does Jesus say leaves justified? The man who humbled himself before the Lord is the one that God answers, is the one that is justified before the Lord. You know, the Bible tells us something very important about what God does to prideful people and also what he does to humble people that should really hopefully help us as we, you know, kind of contemplate whether or not we're going to approach God in pride or humility. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what does God do to prideful people? He resists them. How many of you want God to resist you? Well, guess what? It's going to happen every time you're prideful. What does God do for humble people? He gives them grace. 
The thing that we so desperately want, the thing that we so desperately need, God says, I have it in abundance for those who come to me in humility. When we pray in pride, we can guarantee that is going to hinder our prayer life because God is going to resist us. But when we come to God in humility, there is a grace that God gives to us when we do that. And one of the biggest reasons that pride hinders our prayer life is because prideful people don't pray. Hey, I don't need God's help. I can handle this on my own. I can deal with this myself. I'm good enough. I'm, you know, I got enough strength. I got enough talent. I got enough whatever. Prideful people, you want to know if you're prideful or not? How often do you pray? That's a great sign to tell you how really dependent on yourself you are. F.B. Meyer said this, The greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. We think the greatest tragedy is God doesn't answer it or doesn't answer it the way we want. But really the greatest tragedy is that we don't even take advantage of it. That we don't even offer it at all. And that's pride. That's not willing to come to God in prayer. Not recognizing how much we need him. How important it is. Well, Abraham starts by asking God, you know, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you destroy the city? And God says, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't destroy it. And he continues in humility and he says, okay, well, what about if there's 45? 45 righteous, would you destroy it for 45? No, I won't destroy it for 45. All right, how about if there's 40? If there's 40 righteous, would you destroy the city for 40? No, I won't destroy the city for 40. So Abraham is dwindling the number of righteous people down and just kind of seeing if God will still spare the city for a smaller number. And now the fourth way that Abraham intercedes is in verse 30. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30. As Abraham continues to speak to the Lord, notice what he says, because it reveals something about this approach that he has to God. He says, let not the Lord be angry and I'll continue to speak. I'll continue to intercede. I'll continue to do this. He knows that he started at 50 and he's getting himself down to 30. And, you know, there's a, a boldness here that he has. You know what? I don't want you to be angry, but I also want to continue to intercede. I want to, you know, make sure that, you know, Sodom's not destroyed. And so I have a heart for them. And so I'm going to come boldly to you, even though maybe it's a little uncomfortable for me to keep dwindling the number down. The fourth lesson on prayer I want you to take note of is we need to come to God with boldness when we pray. You know, oftentimes we don't really pray boldly. We don't take the opportunity to approach God in boldness, but it's something that he specifically tells us to do. Hebrews chapter 4, 16 is a great verse. It says this, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find uh, grace to help in time of need. Now, this is a, a wonderful picture. It's a picture of the throne room of a king. But you know what? You read through history, you don't boldly enter the throne room of a king usually, because if you weren't invited, oftentimes they would just kill you. Uh, and so, you know, there's this sense in which here we have the king of king and lord of lords, and oftentimes we're like, oh, I can't approach him. And the Bible's saying, no, come boldly to the throne of grace. I am here. I am available. You always have access to me. You know, this is one of the wonderful things that God does when we accept Jesus Christ. He doesn't just forgive us of our sin. He doesn't just make us his friend. He makes us something else. What is it? His children. And you know what? Children have special access to their dad. 
My girls have special access to me that no one else does. I'm their father. If they come, it's not an interruption. Hey, you're always able to come to me. You're always able to ask of me. You're always available or you're always able. I'm always available for you because you're my kids. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Why? Because we have faith in Jesus Christ. This verse connects that access and that boldness together. Corey Ten Boom said something about prayer, and I love this quote. She says, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer something that you boldly take hold of like a car steering wheel and use every day, or is it just something you use when there's an emergency like a spare tire? What's prayer to you? And I think for many Christians, prayer is a spare tire. Yeah, when there's something really big and we've tried all that we can do to fix it and nothing's worked, all right, Lord, now I'll bring it to you in prayer. Now it's an emergency. Now I don't know how I'm going to fix it. So here's my prayer. Instead of, Lord, I want you to direct my life and everywhere I go, your prayer is this steering wheel because you're actually seeking God each and every day for his direction in your life. Something important to note about coming to God boldly is it's a wonderful thing when it's connected with humility, but it can be a sinful thing when it's connected with pride. We just saw that in the parable that Jesus brings of the Pharisee. He came boldly, oh, I'm so wonderful and I'm so great and look at all I'm doing. But that pride brought the boldness that he came to and made it sinful. It made that prayer something that wasn't good. So boldness is great when we connect it with the point before of coming in humility. Come humbly, but also come boldly to the throne of grace. The fifth and final way that we see Abraham intercede is in verses 30 through 31. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way, and as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Notice Abraham starts at 50. If there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you destroy it? And God says, no. And he says, well, what about 45? No. 40? No. 30? Now he's going by tens. No. 20? And he gets all the way down to 10. Notice that Abram doesn't give up at 50. He doesn't give up at 40. He keeps persisting, keeps persisting with the Lord and, and dwindling it down. And this is the fifth way Abraham uh, intercedes that I want us to take note of. We need to be persistent in our prayers. I know this is something that I have struggled a lot in my life with, and I think it's you know, easy for us to throw out a prayer once. Lord, I really would like you to do this. Lord, I really need this. Lord, please help this person. And then boom, it's done. The persistence can often be the struggle, can often be the difficulty. Am I willing to continue to lift up that thing, that person, that need to the Lord? You know, Jesus shares a couple parables about persistent people. We have the persistent widow who comes to the unjust judge. We have the persistent neighbor who comes at night and says, hey, I need some food. I got uh, people. With both of them, Jesus says, the reason they get what they get is not because they ask nicely. It's what they kept asking. 
They were persistent. They kept going and going and going, and they got it. And Jesus connects that with prayer. That we, as we come to the Lord, should be persistent in our prayer. You know, when you pray for something just once, it reveals something about your heart for it. You don't have a big one for it. The thing that you pray a lot for reveals, I really want to see this happen. You pray for something once versus ten times. Well, the thing that you prayed for ten times, you want to see it happen a lot more than the thing you prayed for one time. You pray for something a hundred times, you want that even more. The fact that you're praying more reveals this reality that you have a heart that's much bigger for that. If you give up, if you're passive about it, it shows that you really don't want to see it happen. You want to see something happen, you're not going to give up. You're going to persist in it. And Abraham You know what? He reveals that he has a heart for these people in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not willing to give up. I'm going to persist. I'm going to continue to lift them up in prayer. And remember, as we started this, God is wanting to work in Abram. He's wanting to help him grow. And here is the thing that's helping him grow. He's now becoming that leader that God wants him to be, a leader who says, you know what? I'm going to intercede on behalf of other people. I'm going to be someone who does that because of love for them. You know, oftentimes God waits to answer our prayers until we start to persist. He, he wants us to start to have a greater heart for the thing that we pray for. And so he says, I'll wait. I'll let you come to me again and again. And I'll let that thing burn inside of you. Your heart for it will grow. And I'm waiting for the purpose of helping you change and helping you grow and helping you have a passion. Oh, Lord, I really want to see that person saved. And then we never pray for it again. I'm going to wait. And then all of a sudden, you're praying regularly more and more. And it's doing something in you. You now, oh God, I'm desperate to see this person come to you. I'm so desiring for you to work in their life. God doesn't want flippant prayers that we don't care about. He wants us to pray for things that we really have a heart for. And persistence is one of those things that demonstrates it. Charles Spurgeon said this about prayer. I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity and persistence of your prayer. The fact that Abraham persistently prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah revealed a spiritual maturity that was taking place in his life. And the same is true for us. Prayer is a great, as Charles Spurgeon says, spiritual thermometer. You want to know where you're at spiritually? If you think, I'm a spiritual giant and I never pray, guess what? You're not a spiritual giant. A lack of prayer shows a immaturity in the Lord. And so this is one of those things where you can really see, as I mentioned earlier, it shows pride because I don't come to the Lord because I don't think I need him. But it just shows an immaturity spiritually with the Lord. Now, before we finish, I want to clarify something about this prayer of what it's not. Because there have been people who have watched what Abraham does with the Lord, and they have concluded something about prayer that is not what the Bible teaches about prayer, and they have misunderstood what's going on here. And that what they misunderstand is that they've come to conclusion that we can change God's will through our prayers. They think that Abraham did that. He started with 50, and he changed God's will and got God down to 10. Way to go, Abraham. But you know what? The purpose of prayer is to not change God's will. The purpose of prayer is to conform us to God's will. We don't use prayer to change God's will to ours. God uses prayer to change our will to his. God is perfect. His will is perfect. His ways are perfect. 
So everything he has done, everything he is doing, everything he will do is perfect. God doesn't make mistakes. He does not need us to enlighten him as to what is best. He does not need us to show him how to do things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are the ones that need to change because we are the ones who are not perfect. Our will and our ways need to change to become more like God. So prayer is something that God uses to help us become more like him. It's not something that we use to get our way. It's not something that we use to try to change his will. Before God revealed to Abraham that he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what? God knew he was going to do it. When God was having this conversation with Abraham, he knew he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham said, 50, will you do it? No, 40, 30, 20, 10. God knew in all of this, I'm still going to do it because the reality is there's only four. And as we'll see next week, it's pretty hard to call them righteous, but the Bible does. Four is left. God says, yeah, if there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy it, but there's not 10. And God is gracious enough to remove those four that are there before he does destroy it. You see, Abraham's prayer didn't change God's mind, but what it did do is help Abraham grow in his ability to intercede for others. It helped Abraham grow in his love for the people of Sodom. It helped Abraham grow to become more like God. That was the purpose here. That's why God revealed this to begin with. Should I hide this from Abraham? No, I'm not going to hide this. I'm going to share this with him because I want him to intercede. I want him to pray. I want him to grow to become more like me. It's been said, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. And that's really the heart of it. So Abraham's prayer for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example to us for how we should pray. And I think one final thing to take note of, and hopefully as a believer in Jesus Christ, you say, I want to become more like Jesus. One thing that Jesus does, which should encourage you greatly, the book of Hebrews tells us, Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since, notice what he does, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is constantly interceding on behalf of people to the Father. That's one of his roles. It's something he does. He has that heart for people and he wants to intercede on their behalf. You want to become more like Jesus. This is a great way to do it. Start interceding for people and you will become more like the intercessor, Jesus Christ. It will make you more like him. This is a wonderful way to grow, to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the main person that Abraham, I'm sure, is concerned about is his nephew, Lot. And so in chapter 19, we're going to see the final thing that we really see of Lot's life, we will see something that we'll note in Peter about him. But really, this is kind of the end of the story. And it's a very sad end of compromise. And I encourage you, before we come together next Thursday, read through chapter 19. See what transpires at the end of Lot's life. And we're going to look at many things that we can learn. And I think, sadly, there's a lot of Lots in the church world today. And that's not a good thing. Any thoughts about what we looked at tonight, about the prayer, about the lessons, any questions you might have?